electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Warren Buffett, in his own words. Nothing can stop America when you get right down to it. Never bet against America. The Oracle of Omaha conducts his first virtual Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting, coronavirus turning capitalism's biggest party into a digital-only event. America's most famous investor selling his stake in airlines. The future is much less clear to me about how the business will turn out through absolutely no fault of the airlines themselves. And weighing in on the future of the U.S. markets. We haven't seen anything attractive. And frankly, it wasn't predicated on this, but the Federal Reserve did the right thing, and they did it very promptly, which they should have, and I salute them for it. Plus, Becky Quick's thoughts on an annual meeting unlike any other that you'll hear only on this podcast. It's Monday. May the 4th be with you. Squawk Pod begins right now. Since the 1980s, Warren Buffett, one of America's richest citizens and the head of the Berkshire Hathaway conglomerate of companies, has held an annual meeting for investors that offers three days of shopping, networking, and an all-out celebration of capitalism. This year, that didn't happen. I caught up with Becky Quick for more. Becky, tell me what you're usually doing on the first weekend in May. Well, usually I'm in Omaha, and usually I am running around the giant auditorium where the Berkshire Hathaway meetings held. And usually it's pretty hectic. There's somewhere between 40 and 40 plus thousand shareholders that descend on Omaha. The whole place takes on this sort of carnival atmosphere, people standing in line starting at about four o'clock in the morning to try and line up and get a seat inside the CenturyLink Center and trying to line up in front of the number of different um, microphones where you can go and ask a question. Uh, This year was a pretty different story. How so? Well, it was a virtual meeting this year, and it was Warren Buffett sitting on the stage at the CenturyLink Center. It was uh, next to him on the stage was Vice Chairman Greg Abel, and that was it. There was nobody in the audience. I know Buffett's daughter was there, Susie. Uh, Debbie Basonic was there. Mark Hamburg was there, the CFO. Uh, but uh, I don't think there was anybody else there. I got some pictures that people sent to me that Susie sent to me, Susie Buffett, of an empty auditorium. Um, and that's it. Now, that doesn't mean the message didn't get out. Lots and lots of people were listening. I haven't seen the numbers yet, but when we were asking for questions, when he put our email address on, on the screen, more than 5,000 questions came streaming in instantaneously. It was so much, it blew up the email box. I was having trouble getting through seeing any of these things that came in. But people were listening, they were writing in questions, and they were writing in questions that were better and more pertinent than we ever get. But Mr. Buffett talked for, I think it was about an hour and 45 minutes at the top, just to explain his viewpoints on where we are right now and how to put that in a historical perspective. His message was never bet against America. And in fact, he put that very slogan up on the screen to emphasize this point. And he talked through how the nation's gotten through such situations as the civil war and the great depression and how he said you could always bet on America. Warren Buffett has been doing the annual shareholders meeting for decades. It's like the Woodstock of capitalism. Will that come back, do you think, or have we seen the end of it? 
No, I think so. Um, in fact, he even said at the end of the meeting, you know, this this year, Charlie Munger was not there, his, his vice chairman and his partner in this, the, the guy who was always sat next to him on the stage. Uh, it, it just didn't make sense to try and have Charlie come out from California where he lives. But at the end of the meeting, uh, Buffett said, we'll be back here next year. Charlie will be here. And he hopes to see everybody back then. Now, look, a lot could happen between now and then, but I think he's... Absolutely. Planning, hoping they'll be able to throw this party next year. So certainly a different Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in 2020. Becky, Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin discussed the newsmaking highlights from the virtual event today on Squawk Box. And here's what that sounded like. Let's get right to our big story of the morning. And that is, of course, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting that uh, was held over the weekend. Warren Buffett there speaking out about the global pandemic and his recent investment moves at a virtual edition of his annual shareholder meeting. Now, this was a little different this year. No crowds. Usually there's 40,000 people there. This time it was just Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chairman Greg Abel on stage. But his message was still received loud and clear. Buffett made the case that you should never bet against America, but he also admitted that he doesn't know how all of this economic uh, ripples will play out from this pandemic and that he has readjusted his own thinking about what will work. He dropped a bit of a bombshell on the market, said that he sold the huge stakes that he bought in the four major airlines. Those were 10 percent stakes that he held in American Airlines, Delta, United and Southwest. Here's his explanation as to why. I just decided that I'd made a mistake in Evaluating as an understandable mistake, it was a probability-weighted decision when we bought that we were getting uh, an attractive amount for our money when investing across the airlines business. So we bought roughly 10% of the four largest airlines, and we felt for that we were getting a billion dollars roughly of earnings. Now, it wasn't, wasn't getting a billion dollars of dividends. But we felt our share of the underlying earnings was a billion dollars, and we felt that that number was more likely to go up than down over a period of time. That it would be cyclical, obviously, but but it was it was as if we bought the whole company, but we bought it through uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and and we can only effectively buy ten percent, roughly, of the four, and uh, we didn't. We treat it mentally exactly as if we were buying a business. And uh, and it turned out I was wrong about that business because of something that was not in any way the fault of four excellent CEOs. I mean, they, 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 believe me, no joy being a CEO of an airline, but the companies we bought were well-managed, did a lot of things right. It's a very, very, very difficult business because you're dealing with millions of people every day. And if something goes wrong for 1% of them, they are very unhappy. So I, I don't envy anybody the job of being CEO of an airline, but I particularly don't enjoy him being in a period like this where essentially nobody and people have been told basically not to file. The airline business, and I, I may be wrong and I hope I'm wrong, but... Uh, I think it it changed in a very major way, and it's obviously changed in the fact that there four companies are each going to borrow, you know, perhaps an average of at least ten or twelve billion each. Well, you have to pay that back out of earnings over some period of time. I mean, you're ten or twelve billion dollars worse off if that happens, and of course, the, in some cases, they're having to sell stock or sell the right to buy a stock at these prices. Uh, 
and that takes away from the the upside down. Uh, and I don't know whether two or three years from now that that as many people will fly as many passenger miles as as uh, they did last year. They may and they may not. It's, uh, but the future is much less clear to me about how the business will turn out through absolutely no fault of the airlines themselves. Now, Buffett made a big point of trying to explain this was, again, no fault of the airlines themselves and no fault of the CEOs. He said all four of the CEOs who run those companies are excellent CEOs. He said that those are all well-managed companies. He just said the equation has changed and he has big concerns uh, about what happens from here. Um, guys, in terms of what he's been doing, his cash pile built up over the first quarter. It went from $127 billion that he had at the end of the year to $137 billion. So instead of deploying that capital when the markets went down so significantly in February and in March, he was continuing to build up. He, he did say that he spent about $1.8 billion on stocks in the first quarter. That's a paltry amount when you consider how much of the cash he's got. He spent $1.7 billion on buying back Berkshire shares. Again, that was for the first quarter. He also talked about what he's been doing in April, and the, and the pattern has not changed in April. I think he spent $427 million on equities in the month of April, and that tells you a little bit about his broader concerns. His huge thing is wanting to make sure that he's managing for, for any crisis. Yeah. Who knows how long to he'll me, be in that position, defensive. I, I mean, the, the, any indicate like he could have been there today thinking maybe I'll do something today now that I've said I haven't done anything yet. I mean, in the next quarter, do you expect him? He said that if there, if there was a big deal that came along, a right deal that came along, that he'd be more than willing to deploy that cash. Said that, you know, they'd spend a big chunk of it if they got the right opportunity. He talked a little bit about how they haven't stepped into the market like they did back in 2008, when they're, in 2009, when they, things were in real problems. There had been eight companies that they stepped into finance during the Great Recession. They haven't done that this time. And he said part of the reason really is that the Fed and the Treasury did the right thing, that they went out of their way to stabilize markets. And as a result, um, these companies, he said, got better deals in the open marketplace and from the Fed and Treasury than they would have gotten from Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, there are... To me, I thought this was the most, this was the most cautious I'd ever seen, right. uh, Warren. And, and, and I, I wrote about it actually yesterday. There's the idea that he did walk... He actually at one point said, I don't want to walk through the worst case scenarios and then... Uh, and then proceeded in certain cases to sort of walk through some of them, talked about that $137 billion and said, you know, in a worst case scenario, that that actually isn't a huge amount of money. And, and it was it was it was a sobering uh, comment because, you know, you look at where we are. And I think there's a lot of people that are very hopeful and optimistic that we put this either behind us or we're, we're about to move forward. And he, he clearly talked about his company as wanting to be Fort Knox in a way that's very different, as Becky said, than the way I think he was thinking back in 2008 or even, by the way, in 2016, when he wrote in his annual letter about the need, the once a decade opportunities that come uh, when it looks like there are dark clouds and you run outside with, with, with the wash tub rather than the teaspoon to collect as much gold as you humanly can. So, yeah, he's not um, doing that. Uh, I think there are a lot of people watching those comments, right. and he's not doing it. Well, that's he's why I said, it. you know, we don't exactly. even be doing it this morning. That's, that's why I said, what do we know about the next quarter? And I'm not saying that he would be trying yeah. to hide his intentions, but he does things when, when, right. when he went. But with the great like flagship properties right now that are 30 percent less than they were and him still not using 137 billion to 
to try to, as you say, collect those things. That's probably that's probably notable. But he, you know, he he's like the rest of us. He doesn't know about whether a vaccine's possible at the end of the year. He doesn't know whether a therapeutic's going to work. He doesn't know whether herd immunity is. I feel extraordinarily good about being able to listen to Dr. Fauci, who I never heard of a year ago. But I think we're very, very fortunate as a country to have somebody at 79 years of age who appears to be able to work 24 hours a day and keep a good humor about him and communicate in a, in a very, very uh, straightforward manner about fairly complex subjects and tell you when he knows something and when he doesn't know something. So I, uh, I'm not going to uh, talk about any political figures at all or, or politics generally uh, this afternoon, but uh, I do feel that, uh, that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Dr. Fauci for educating and informing me, uh, actually along with my friend Bill Gates, too, uh, as to what's going on, and I know I get it, uh, I get it from a straight shooter when I get it from either one of of those. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Fauci. You yeah. know, he, he's not Nostradamus. I mean, he went it, out of his way. He, he went out of his way to say that he doesn't know anything else on the medical front about what's right. happening, that he's been listening to Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates. And, and that's where he gets his information from. But he doesn't know anything else on that front. He said he didn't want to answer questions on that because he's not an expert in something like that. Um, and I, I, again, he did say he would be there to take big deals if the terms were right. I don't think he thinks the terms are right. And I think in some instances, right. his entire view of industries has changed as evidenced by selling out of this. I don't think this is all that different necessarily than what he was doing during the Great Recession, because he wasn't talking all the time. People keep sending in these questions. How come he's been so silent? Well, it's been six weeks since his last interview. Um, he wasn't talking all that much during 2008 and 2009 either. He would come on every once in a while, but it was months in between each time that he came on. I, I think he's looking to see how this plays out in the market and, and just waiting to see. And, and like he said, uh, the Fed and the Treasury did the right thing. And these businesses have gotten better deals in the open marketplace than they would get from Berkshire and Hathaway And part of right what now. he did back then was he'd get a 10 or 11 percent convertible from a company where he knew right. that they were going to pay the 10 or 11 percent. It didn't you know, it wasn't nearly as uh, as important about the, the, you know, whether he got the convert to work out properly. He was going to get 10 or 11 yeah. percent to wait. And do you know if you're going to get 10 or 11 percent when nobody's <laughs> when the businesses you're Not buying, right no one, I they mean, have it, no it, customers? Look, you, what did what did Royal Caribbean? I mean, you, you had our Princess Cruise Lines. One of those one of the, the cruise lines got a, a huge amount of money at way lower than you would have anticipated given what's been happening. There's been more right. people who have been willing to wade into the market on this, again, because the markets were stabilized by the actions the government took. You can get that right. minivan but with I, the I vacuum the, cleaner, but, Sorkin. I mean, it's, they're, they're giving away I know. I, the, uh, cars I, right The now. only thing I would say is, I think, yes, the big opportunities were, were I don't know, missed or, or didn't exist because the Fed came in. But because the Fed came in, as you said, there are other people coming in now thinking this is still a good opportunity. And, and at least my perspective, just listening to him, was that he was still planning to wait. That when he talked even about the airlines, it wasn't simply a call straight up on the airlines. It was a call that there may be less passengers on these planes two and three years from now. And the knock-on effect, the, econo the, the demonstrable economic effects of that. And so 
to me, that was that was just it was just sobering to hear it uh, from somebody who's uh, had so much certainty over the years. At least that's the, that's how I felt about it. And, and and I, by the way, I thought it was humbling. I thought it was human um, and I admired all of it. But I, I it, it definitely uh, made me sit down. Becky, I had people writing in saying, see, Buffett hates buybacks. It's like, shut up. Uh, anyway, I know. Uh, I know. Well, let's tell people about that, because that was another one of the huge headlines that came out. Buffett also spoke about a corporate practice that has become controversial, and that is stock buybacks. He defended the practice that so many, especially in Washington, are attacking right now. We've distributed some of the capital that we don't need for growth. Now, whether the company should buy it depends on a couple of things. One is they ought to retain the money they need for intelligent growth prospects. That's fine. And... Secondly, and this is a point that's never mentioned, they should be buying it back below what they think it's worth. Now, they'll make mistakes in that, but you make mistakes in a lot of business decisions. But over that should be the guiding principle. And to my knowledge, uh, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon said it once, and we've said it various times, you know, we retain, st- we, 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 we will repurchase shares when it's to the advantage of the continuing shareholder to have us do so. But you read about all these buyback programs that say we're going to spend $5 billion buying it back or $10 billion. Well, that's like saying I'm going to go out and buy some business this year for $5 billion without knowing what you're going to get for the money. It, it, it should be price sensitive, obviously. It should be needs sensitive, obviously. But when the conditions are right, it should also be obvious to repurchase shares. And there shouldn't be the slightest taint to it any more than there is to dividends. And people that have now sort of taken up the cries about how terrible it was that companies bought back stock. Well, you can say it was terrible for them to pay dividends, too, Then they'd have more money now. But they were doing what was intelligent at the time, and I hope they continue to do what's intelligent as they go forth. This is a practice he's defended in the past, but he did it more vigorously this time because that practice is more under attack. His point all along, if you've been listening to him for years about this, has been that, look, if a partner wants out of a business and the other partners in the business want to buy that partner out, that should happen. You should have a way out. Companies, when they do buy back stairs, just increase the percentage of the business that the existing shareholders have, therefore making every share more valuable. Right. Uh, you know, if you buy stuff like, I mean, Boeing, you know, I don't, or when you're buying things at 400 and it's going to 100, it just obviously it just looks like you're an idiot. And, and Eastman Kodak or General Electric, I mean, it, over the years we've seen it where it made absolutely no sense. But that's what he's saying, just the mindless when CEOs, remember the financial crisis, don't give them cash, give them performance-based compensation. So if they can shrink the float, then they get higher earnings per share. And just so the mindless robot buying back stock is probably not great. Because look what happened. Where does, we discussed, where does that money go again when, when you buy it at, at 300 and the stock goes to 100? Where is it? It's, it's not in money heaven. It's money heaven. A lot of money it. heaven. Could have been better spent, probably. Heaven. But sometimes if, you, if you're Apple and you don't know what else to buy and, and you think your, your shares are... Remember how undervalued Apple was? If, right. if, if, if that right. would have been a good move to buy that back, right, at that point. So it, it's, you can't just paint it with the same brush. Where are you, Sork? I mean, I don't know where you are on any given day. You take these crises I, to, to I take know I can tell you exactly of, where I am. To I'm, push all this I'm, ESG no, stuff. I'm, and it, it, you know, so I'm you, exactly where Warren is. I'm exactly where Warren is, which is there's nothing immoral at all about buying back shares. But there's something very wrong about 
the system with which we have today for the most part, which is that, as you said, a lot of these share buyback programs are relatively mindless, meaning a robot's doing them. They make these grand proclamations and announcements and then they do them. Um, and they are done in certain cases, as you know, uh, probably immorally, which is to say to help prop up the, the stock price and to push up executive compensation. So the question is not to eliminate buybacks, but how do you tailor it in a way where people are, are more mindful of how they're approaching them, doing them opportunistically? And look, people are going to get them wrong. They're always going to get them wrong. And we will look back and you look at Boeing and you'll say, ah, oh, that, 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 what a mistake that was. But I think the question is, how do you get the system to a place where it's not, the default is not to approach it in the mindless way that much of corporate America is doing it today. I think that that's where I land. All right, guys, let me tell you about one more headline coming out of the meeting. There were a lot of them, but we'll jump through this one, too. There was a shareholder question, a lot of shareholder questions about Berkshire's performance versus the S&P 500. Berkshire has underperformed the broader market for the year to date, for the last five years and for the last 10 years. Again, that was a question brought by several shareholders, and here's his response. I got a number of variations on this next question, some more polite than others. This one's right about down the middle. Uh, But this is from Mark Blakely, who writes in from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he says, like many, I'm a proud Berkshire Hathaway shareholder. However, in comparing the performance of Berkshire with the S&P 500 over the last 5, 10, or 15 years, I've been disappointed in Berkshire's underperformance. Even year-to-date, Berkshire is trailing the S&P 500 by 8%. To what would you attribute Berkshire's underperformance? Well, I can't imagine ever selling my Berkshire stock. At some point, money is money. <laughs> well, I, I agree with everything that uh, I forget his name, but said, I mean, the uh, the truth is that that's I recommend the S&P 500 to people. And I happen to believe that Berkshire uh, is as, about as sound as any single investment can be uh, in in terms of uh, earning reasonable returns over time. But I, I would not want to bet my life on whether we beat the S&P 500 over the next 10 years. I think there's a, you know, I obviously think there's a reasonable chance of doing it, but, and we've had periods, I don't know how many out of the 50, 55 years we've been doing it or at, uh, uh, I don't know how many we've beaten it or not. I, I mentioned earlier that 1954 was my best year, but, uh, but I was working with absolutely with peanuts, unfortunately. And, and I think if you work with small sums of money, I think there is some chances, some chance of a few of people that really do bring something to the game. But I think it's very, very hard for anybody to identify them. And I think that when they work with large funds, it gets tougher. And uh, it's certainly gotten tougher with for us with larger funds. And I would make no promise to anybody that we will do better than the S&P 500. But I, what I will promise them is that I've got 99% of my money in Berkshire, and most members of my family are may not be quite that extreme, but they're close to it. And I do care about what happens to Berkshire over the long period about as much as anybody could care about it. But, you know, caring doesn't guarantee results. It does guarantee attention. 
you know, it's harder and harder for a big pile of money to outperform like that. And that's a point he's made frequently. I think a lot of people have questions because really they've invested in Berkshire because they think it will outperform in down times. Now, that has not been the case here to date. I guess I wonder what happens over the next year, two years, three years. Um, and, and, and that's going to play out. But they, there were some shareholders who are definitely pushing back about that. More Warren Buffett next on Squawk Pod. His take on the extraordinary measures taken to boost the U.S. economy in the face of coronavirus. We're doing things that we really don't know the ultimate outcome. And I think, in general, they're the right things, but I don't think they're without consequences. And Allianz Chief Economic Advisor Mohamed al on the markets reckoning ahead. When we reset, which we will, we will reset differently. What investors have to figure out is which 10% is not coming back. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. Warren Buffett speaking to shareholders over the weekend at a virtual Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. Um, Nobody there, not the 40,000 people who are usually there, but the message still got out. He shared his thoughts on the wide range of economic possibilities that could result from the coronavirus pandemic, but says he remains convinced that nothing can stop America. Buffett warned investors not to get into a position where market disruptions affect them, citing many historical examples, everything from the Civil War to the Great Depression. He spoke about America's willingness to stand up to adversity. We found that uh, nothing can stop America when you get right down to it. And uh, it's been true all along. It may have been interrupted with the scariest of scenarios when you had a war with one group of states fighting another group of states. And it may have been tested again in the Great Depression, and it may be tested now to some degree. But in the end, the answer is never bet against America. Now, Buffett didn't say whether he thought the stock market would improve over the next month, the next uh, year, the next two years. But he did say over the long haul, he knows that America will come back and be very strong. In terms of his own cash pile, he is building that amount up. He has $137 billion in cash. Uh, That's from $127 billion at the end of the year. But that is because they run an insurance company. They want to make sure that they never have to ask anybody else for help and that they are always able to withstand anything. Buffett also talked about the Fed's response to the pandemic and why he said he didn't see anything attractive to buy when the market was well off its highs. We haven't seen anything attractive. Uh, uh, And frankly, uh, it wasn't predicated on this, but the Federal Reserve did the right thing and they did it very promptly, which they should have. And I salute them for it. But that means that a lot of companies that needed money and probably should have done their financing a little earlier, but they're perfectly decent companies, got the chance to finance in huge ways in the last five weeks or thereabouts. I mean, it's set records. Some companies have come back twice, a number of very big companies that didn't bother to to, uh, extend out their borrowings uh, came a couple times. Berkshire actually raised some more money. We don't don't need it, but we'll... we'll, I think it's still a good idea over time. And, uh, And then there are... 
some pretty marginal companies that have also had access to, to money. So there is no shortage of of funds at uh, rates which we would not invest at. Uh, so it, we have not we have not done anything because uh, we don't see anything that attractive to do. Now that could change, you know, very quickly, or it may not change. Uh, but in two thousand eight and nine, the truth is, we weren't we weren't buying those things to make a statement to the world. They may have made a statement to the world to some extent, and I'm glad that they did if they did. But 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 we made them because they seemed intelligent things to do, and markets were such that we didn't really have much competition. Now, the Fed has promised to use a full range of tools to try and prop up the economy during this pandemic. Buffett says he doesn't know the consequences of the Fed's balance sheet expansion, but he knows the consequences of doing nothing. I'd love to be secretary of the Treasury if I knew I could keep raising money at negative interest rates. That, that makes life pretty simple. It's, uh, uh, we're doing things that we really don't know the ultimate outcome. To. I think and I think in general, they're the right things, but I don't think they're without consequences. And I think they could be kind of extreme consequences if pushed far enough. But there would be kind of extreme consequences if we didn't do it as well. So if somebody has yeah. us to ma- you know, balance those, those, those questions. Again, that's uh, Warren Buffett, the chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Joining us right now to talk more about all of this and the market implications is Mohammed El Arian. He is the chief economic advisor at Allianz. And Mohammed, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you, Becky, and thank you for a great Q&A with Warren Buffett just on Saturday. Thanks, Mohammed. I know that you were watching to see what he had to say about the markets. What did you think about his assertion about what the Fed's been doing right now and what the potential consequences are? You know, Becky, he put perfectly this debate, and it's not an either-or, but it's a question of balance. And it's a question for the marketplace. Would you rather have the blanket support of the Fed, as we did this time around, or would you rather have Warren Buffett's rescue financing, as we did in 2008? Um, People will argue either side of this. He pointed out that on the one hand, you get the Fed normalizing markets quickly. But on the other hand, you get people who shouldn't be borrowing, raising money. And that's the issue for capitalism. You know, what's better? My own sense is the Fed went too far in going to the high yield market. But I understand why they did it. And time will tell what the consequences are. You know, Mohammed, this time's a little different than 2008. Back then, it was some bad actions and and bad behaviors that led to the financial crisis. It was uh, activity at the banks and other places, consumers kind of jumping in on all these things. Uh, Warren said this time's different, as we all know it. This was nobody's fault. None of these companies did anything wrong. They just got slapped first by the pandemic and then by the shutdown of the the economy, saying we're not going to let people go out. So in a situation like that, should the government be more responsive like this? Um, Because, again, we're not talking about moral risk. We're not talking about moral hazard or anything that anybody did wrong. It's a pandemic and it's a government response to that pandemic to just shut the economy down. So first, it should be which part of government? Should it be the Fed with it, or should it be the Treasury? Second, what rules should govern this? Should there be certain terms in terms of behaviors of what you expect these companies to do? And, and finally, and I think Warren Buffett put it really clearly, you know, you, you and, and Andrew and Joe have, have pointed out he was more cautious. It was a very sobering tone because he kept on saying, we don't know what's ahead. 
He kept on talking about a whole scenarios of possibilities, not a baseline, which is very different from 2008-9. He talked about tail risk on and on again. He talked about balance sheet strength. This notion of we don't know what's ahead. And he warned us not all the problems emerge on the first day. So, you know, there's also an issue of how, how quickly should you step in with these blanket support from the Fed? Look, if you were talking about the Treasury and there were principles governing bailouts, I would be with you. But, but the Fed opened up the high-yield market for, every, for almost everybody. And that raises the specter of zombie companies. And we've got to be careful about this because that eats away at what makes America special. And that's the reason why we don't ever bet against America, because of its dynamism. Mohammed, uh, Buffett also said that uh, there are scenarios, worst case scenarios that he can imagine um, that he didn't want to talk about because he didn't want to make it more likely to happen. Worst case scenarios. And that's what he wants to make sure that, that Berkshire Hathaway is prepared for and, and, and has this fortress defense about. When, when you start thinking about some of those things, not that they're likely, but what, what would be a potential worst case scenario in terms of how the economy reacts? So he gave us examples. I think airlines are an example where he said, you know what? Behavior has changed. This is a completely different sector coming out of the crisis. It will not be at full capacity. He talked about all those planes. He also spoke about some, some of his companies having a permanent loss in sales. He gave the example of Easter for Seas Candy. And he spoke about other companies that were weak and are not coming back. And that's within his empire. So this notion is coming out, and I think it's the right notion, that when we reset, which we will, we will reset differently. The economists called it the 90% global economy. There's going to be 10% of the global economy, in their view, that's going to be missing. And what investors have to figure out is which 10% is not coming back. Mohammed, thank you. It is great to see you again, and we will talk to you very soon. Mohammed el -Aryan. Thank you, Becky. Coming up, words of hope during a pandemic. Apple CEO Tim Cook delivers a virtual commencement address to Ohio State graduates. Build a better future than the one you thought was certain. And in a fearful time, call us once again to hope. Squawk Pod will be back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. 
Apple CEO Tim Cook delivered a virtual commencement address over the weekend to Ohio State's 2020 graduates. He struck, he struck an optimistic tone. It can be difficult to see the whole picture when you're still inside the frame, but I hope you wear these uncommon circumstances as a badge of honor. Those who meet times of historical challenge with their eyes and hearts open, forever restless and forever striving, are also those who leave the greatest impact on the lives of others. You weren't promised this day. Many of you had to fight hard to earn it. Now it's yours. Think anew. Act anew. Build a better future than the one you thought was certain. And in a fearful time, call us once again to hope. Congratulations to you all. Be great. Be well. Thank you very much. Guys, I, I, I teared up a little bit reading his speech over the weekend just because you start thinking about the 13,000 graduates from Ohio State who have been waiting for this day. And while it might be a small thing in, uh, in terms of everything else that we've lost during all of this, you see the economy shutting down. You see people who aren't able to work and to go to any of these things. But it just add it to the list of, of things that we have lost because of this pandemic and because of the shut, shutdown. But I thought Tim's uh, message was the right one, kind of inspiring these kids, teaching them it's okay in times of adversity, you stand up to it. But um, I, I just thought he did a great job with that commencement speech. Tough for college kids, I, I can tell you. And, and yeah. you know, with, with my daughter, I, I said, you know, just be glad you're, you know, a sophomore. I, I, she can't imagine being a senior right now where it, it's, right. you're not, you didn't see any of your friends since your four friends, months, right. three months ago. You're not going to see them. You're not going to have a graduation. It's unprecedented. But then I always try to, there's always someone who's doing so much worse than what's happening with, with your own life. And that's what you got to remember. Right. And we're, we're, you know, we, we probably, that reminds me of the one percenter complaints, right? It's working where we, you, you're, right. your echo in your, you can't get rid of that echo in your forehead from much, all the marble you got. We have nothing your, to complain about no. compared to a lot of people right now. I did see nothing to complain about. I saw someone sent me a cartoon of um, they got um, Marty McFly and I don't know if you've seen this and, and Doc and they're sitting in the DeLorean. Right. And the, the dials there and, and uh, Marty uh, Doc says definitely do not set it to 2020. Just definitely do not. Set it. <laughs> That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Together in spirit, if practicing social distancing. Who cut your hair, Sorkin? I'm coming out to your house. Do you have someone that knows what they're doing out there? Right here. I, I did it myself. What's the Floby? I mean, no joke. It? Huh? No. <laughs> With a scissor. I'm gonna, you know what? We've gotten a lot of emails, and t- or I've gotten a lot of emails and tweets about this. Next time I do it, I will we'll do it for a couple minutes on the show, and I'll show you how to do it, Joe. I learned myself. I just literally take a scissor. I'm doing this like this with my scissor. What if, <laughs> I, <laughs> if I just send this to you? Can you cut it and send it back? Tune in to Squawk Box weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern, and subscribe to Squawk Pod, available for free wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. 
See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.